Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a different type of uh, guest today. He's an author, uh, Edward Savio. Uh, he doesn't want to go by Ed. He wants to go by his full Edward name. And he, he told me an interesting story offline that, uh, you know, he, he needs to hear his full name in order for it not to sound like other sounds around him, which was, I think, a cool, cool story about his name. Uh, he's the author of multiple books, and um, we're going to be talking about some of his new works. He's a screenwriter, and uh, I just like to, you know, get his perspective on uh, why he wrote his books and what they're about, and you know, that's that's what this call is going to be about. So, Edward, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Rich. Yeah, I noticed um, in your bio you, you have a uh, what do you call an anti-screenplay, "Idiots in the Machine," <laughs> and you you wrote it so that uh, I don't know, is a challenge for someone to make into a movie or I mean, tell me about that. What, where did that idea come from? What's it about? And why is it uh, unusual? So Idiots in the Machine is kind of this. Uh, so if, if you ever heard of a book called Confederacy of Dunces, um, if yes. you haven't, it's, it's, a, it's a, for anybody who hasn't out there, it's this book that, you know, I saw the book on the lower shelf of a bookstore, uh, picked it up, looked at the cover, read the back uh, read the first paragraph of the book and decided to buy it. And I thought it was going to be a certain, and it turned out to be this amazing, amazing, hilarious book, which won a Pulitzer prize. And I had never had any understanding that you could write something funny because I wrote comedy and make it literary. And so it kind of blew my mind, but it wasn't the book that I thought it was right. It, it was different. And I had this image in my head as a screenwriter, as a writer, as a storyteller. As soon as I saw the picture, as soon as I read the back cover, I immediately wrote a story, at least a, a rough ghost of a story in my head of what I was going to read. And I mean, I don't know if other people do that. I know that other writers do that, where we kind of expect something. And I read the book, loved it, but it wasn't that book. So a couple of years later, I wrote that book, the book that I was thinking about. And I, you know, screenplays are like haiku. You have to uh, fit them into 120 pages or whatever. You've got to have two hours. You've got to have this. You have so much dialogue, even right down to the one font we can use, which oh. is courier. And because they have to know how long a minute is on a page. And that's how we've judged it for 100 years. That's so, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so when I went and decided to write something else, prose, I'd written short stories when I was younger and poetry and, and a musical, but I, I had never really delved into narrative novel prose. And when I did that, I was like, I do not want any restraints on me. I want to write something that is not a screenplay, has, is goes into the characters, goes into all of this. And I really was like, no, I'm going to go against everything I know as a screenwriter. Well, of course, the natural storytelling uh, 
and the visual sort of storytelling that happens when, when the reason why I wrote screenplays, I, I grew up one, I actually in seventh grade, I went to writing because I thought there's only two ways to be a director. One, be a cinematographer or a film, you know, a photographer, you're the cameraman uh, okay. or you're a writer. I mean, there's a few people now that over the years that have been actors that have become directors, but the greatest of all have either really been very, very visual or very uh, story-based. Um, and so when I did this book, eventually my own needs to tell the story and be visual over came out. It came out. So eventually this book is visual. Eventually it does have this, but in so many ways, I, I broke all of these rules and went into... Uh, the past and into different moments. It was a really amazing thing. And what was so amazing about it is that it ended up being at the time, my biggest sale of any of my screenplays. I'd sold uh, four or five projects to studios for, you know, very good money. I mean, very good money, but this just became a seven figure deal. And it was, it blew my mind because it was this thing that uh, you know, just couldn't possibly be. Uh, it hasn't. So I don't know, maybe if that might, I might have succeeded, but it was, you know, we did develop it and it was purchased by uh, Wendy Feinerman and the, the producers who um, uh, won the Academy Award for Forrest Gump and Sony. But so that's my anti-screenplay. Uh, but well, I learned well, what to makes calm it, it down. Um, <laughs> out of the rules that you broke, which ones did you feel would make it, uh, you know, unmakeable as a screenplay and why? Um, internal dialogue, mostly. That so much of the story is not in the dialogue. That so, that, that, you know, when we see dialogue, when someone says, you know, a bad writer, not bad writer, an immature writer will have, uh, will write the line, I love you, or I want you, right? If you're writing a screenplay, and you want to make it interesting or sexy or romantic, you talk about, I mean, you can go to the, the simple, very simple Jerry Maguire thing. It's like, you complete me, right? He's not saying, I love you. He's saying, you complete me. And so, he's, so they're using different words to say these meanings. Um, and, but, but you still have to get them across in a screenplay because, they can't, because the people can't read the stage direction. So in a book, what I was doing, and a lot of great books do this, is I might be saying, yeah, or wow, or something simple in dialogue, but the internal dialogue or the story that's going on between the characters behind the scene that I'm describing is absolutely almost impossible to put up on a visual, if that makes any sense. So that was the major part. Yeah, I was just thinking about reading a book, you know, you lose the visual. It has to be recreated in the writing. So, you know, I started wondering as you were talking, I guess when you're writing for the screen, it's completely different than when you're writing, you know, for let's say just a book to be read or to be spoken. And then I wondered about an audio book. Like, do you have to now incorporate, you can incorporate even more things. Like there's the, uh, you know, the, the tone and the sound of the person. So it just made me wonder, like, I guess you have to, in order to be really good at a given craft, you have to think about those things that may not be apparent. You have to think about the delivery method, right? And one of the most interesting things, like I have often had this, um, thankfully I had this pet peeve early on. So um, there, is this, there is this belief, and it is starting to change. There's been this belief in novel writing that he said, she said, is kind of like in a, in a play or a screenplay, 
um, these things that we just don't see. Um, in a screenplay, you have the character's name every time the character speaks. No one says that, of course, right? These two people are just talking. In a book, uh, in order for us to know who's speaking, we often say, he said, she said, this character name said, that character. Um, to help us navigate who these people are. When a narrator is reading that, it sound, and if it's repetitive, it is no longer invisible. Where when we're reading it, it's invisible. When it's being read out loud, it is not. So this, I think we should go to the store, he said. I don't know. What time do you think? She said. I think uh, 6 p.m., he said. It becomes this repetition and, and it distracts from it. So um, yeah. I, I know a bunch of really great writers that I, I have, admire, actually, who have talked about this. I luckily hated that so much. Uh, and again, speaking of people who are just starting out, they always want to do the thing like, well, I'll just change the word like he announced or he replied or whatever. Those are things that stand out even more. So what you have to try to do is is describe, hopefully, sometimes some emotion or physical action that's going on that the person is doing uh, just before or after they're speaking, which helps highlight both the information, gives us an idea of what's going on and builds a better picture in our head, but also tells us who's speaking without, by doing it in a more stealth way. So I guess um, in, a, in writing, it would be harder to have dialogue in writing. It would be easier to, I guess, talk about what one person's doing and have them speak. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how you do it. I guess this is what you learn when you, you know, you go to a screenwriting school or writing school or well, just try. It's, I think it's, you know, it's funny because so much of uh, teaching this type of stuff is not taught in schools. There are technical things that are taught. There are approaches that are taught. I mean, just like you can go to school for English and, and you're writing books and literature, you're going to have some understanding of technique, but you're still not, it still takes something else. And, and it's not always genius. It's not always greatness. Um, but one of the things that I like about like what you've been doing with people is talking to different people about how do you get to like, what, I mean, you use the term genius, but let's just call it to be the best at something you do. Right. right. And how do you get there? And you know, there's the, oh, there's that thing, right? The 10,000 hours. And that's important. Um, one of the cool things that uh, in the Battle for Forever series that um, I'm writing now, the first book is Alexander X and the second book is, um, is Ancient Among Us. And I'm working on the third book now, League of Old, is that these people are um, basically just imagine people who are, are normal or normal in every way, except they are, some of them are 4,000. 5,000, 3,000 years, and oh. they look like they're 50 or 40 or 30. And when we meet our first, our character, Alexander X, he looks like he's about 17, 15 to 17. He's actually 1,500 years old. And everything about him, his brain, his, his body, his, his physical and mental development are like um, a teenager because they just develop at a much slower rate. There's, they can die, all of that. But there's just this one genetic defect. And for me, what has been most interesting about this, besides getting to go back into, um, into the past and into history, sometimes I write where I will write whatever I want and I'm making up stuff. But with this, with this series, I have really tried to stick with what is real 
and tell true parts of the stories of, of history that we don't even know, like who actually was the first person in flight and, and things like that. Um, but to me, the greatest super, the superpower that anyone can have is time. And because even if you're just good at something or average, if you had a hundred years to learn magic, like practical magic, you would look like you were a real magician, right? You, if you had a hundred years or 200 to play the piano, even if you were crappy, you would seem like the greatest piano player ever. And so well, you, you also have to, I mean, you know, there's that old adage, I guess, in business, you know, if you, you've been doing something for 30 years, but are you doing the same thing for 30 years or, or are you progressing over 30 years? So like, even though people don't have, let's say as much time as your characters, if you really put yourself to it and you study and you try, I mean, you can accomplish a lot within a, you know, 10, 20, 30 year span. That's exactly. And, And my kids are now 18 and 20. And when I first started the series, they were, you know, early teenagers. And part of the thing that I, what I was speaking to them, right. Is that you can, if you just take the time, it's kind of like these, these characters in, in the book, they're not the Da Vinci's, you know, um, the Da Vinci's, it would be amazing if the Da Vinci's had more time, but they're not the creators and the inventors, but they are the masters of these other things because they've been able to learn from the greats, the geniuses, but, but these people are great because of time. And like you said, it doesn't in years, you can, you can compress it into 10. Um, you just have to be really focused on what you do. You know, I've talked to people and one of the most, there are, of course, and I think we all, the, the people who are really good at what we do, hopefully we showed early talent, you know, and even when everyone said, you can't do this, you have to do something else. Um, I know for me, this is what the case was. I mean, parents, everybody was like, you cannot become a writer. You're not going to make money as a writer. You've got to have a real job. Um, you have to have a kind of determination and, and a belief that is um, almost beyond reality. Uh, and, and if you look at any of the people that have done some things in life, um, I think part of their, I mean, some, you know, everybody comes from different levels of privilege, but wherever we come from, I didn't start with anything, right? And some people start with more, some people start with less, but you can, if you're determined, I mean, determination is really the most, is like the greatest skill I've seen in most, you know? Well, what, um, going into this, this Ajax book and the, the similar ones, like, why did you write them? Why does it fascinate you or apparently fascinate you that, uh, people that would have lived for a thousand or 1500 years. Like why did you want to write a story about people like that? And what are you hoping to communicate to other people by, by doing it? Well, Alexander X. So his last name is, you know, he, he has, he doesn't really have a last name because, you know, he's been around for so long. He's used so many. And so he, he's actually the 10th of his name, but he says it, Alexander X, like Malcolm, because <clears throat> Malcolm said, I don't have a name because I came from, I was taken from, my name was stolen. And so, with Alexander X, with these other characters, um, what, there were a couple things that were interesting to me. First of all, I love the idea that someone has the ability to learn things, like we talked about, to get better at things, to progress. Um, and the other thing I wanted is, because I like, I mean, sometimes I write ridiculous science fiction, but I wanted this to be fairly straightforward, um, realistic science fiction. 
that I wanted to have time travel without having time travel. And we can, I can, my character can tell me a story from a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, or another character can bring up a story from 500 years ago and they're there. And we can go into that moment and see that moment and hear about that moment. And we can look at something that we think we know, like in the first book, um, we go back to the, the ride of Paul Revere and you know, it's part of the story. It's part of the, the, how we get, we're in the present. Um, everything is fine. He's been living in a, Alexander has been living in a small town in Massachusetts and everything's fine. He's been hiding out and he's, you know, the, the whole point of this story, Rich, is that um, it's about technology in a lot of ways. And well, it reminds me of like Anne Rice and the vampire Lestat. And, you know, they were around for a couple hundred years and they were, they couldn't take their existence and et cetera. I just, I wonder if it's uh, very different from that. Like, like what are some of the things, let's say from reader comments, or from people that, that, you know, read this book, or these books, uh, they, they said to you, they really surprised you, or you, you said, oh, great, they got what I was trying to convey. Yeah, I think it's the deep dives into history. And I think it's the, the look into history and that um, it's also this idea of the future and technology. So you love technology. I love technology. I'm, I'm actually more techno savvy than my kids are. Um, in many ways. And I've used technology for all kinds of stuff for really to make uh, my writing um, more productive and uh, to, to capture more of what I can do um, to increase the amount that I can output that I wouldn't have been able to do 50. Um, Whether it's, you know, tablets that, you know, where, where I can write, handwrite stuff and then I can have it on my screen instantly or voice recognition or being able to type and, you know, edit and see things on three different screens at once um, and just search for something that I know I wrote, but I can't remember what it was, but I can look up a keyword and get that piece of information. I've used technology, but for these people, they've been great. And then they've pretended to age or pretended to die or pretended to just disappear. And they've come back as other people, as other great people. But for the last hundred years, because of technology and photographs, DNA, all of the things that we have now, they can't be famous or great again. Because once they are identified, even if they went away, as long as this technology exists, they could come back 50 years from now and someone would go, that's you. You're you. And you, that doesn't make sense because you look the same as you did 50 years ago. And all of a sudden they're secret. So the story here, the greater story is that People you want to get to Alexander X because his father is one of the great people through history. And he is trying to stop others who are trying to do something, which is what would these people do to protect them? How would they handle our society if they needed to protect their, there's maybe a, a thousand of them in the world. Most of them are three or 400 adults. Um, what would they do? And my answer is that they would take, they would take technology and they've lived for thousands of years without this technology. They could live for thousands. We have not been able, we have not lived without. So what would their answer be? And that's been the discovery over the, you know, the first two books and now the third book coming. Well, I guess it's uh, in a small way, you know, I'm in my forties and I lived for, you know, 25 years without a cell phone at least. And, you know, 30 some odd without a smartphone. But now I'm like, wow, I don't know how I lived without one. <laughs> so no matter how old I was, I wonder if, uh, 
once I got used to using a certain piece of technology, I still might think I, I can't live without it, even though I've lived for a long time without it. These people, to- right. And, and I think there is that. I think they don't recognize that they have become over the past hundred years dependent upon certain things. The, however, their, their lives, their secret, their ability to be who they are without being incarcerated, torn apart, torn apart you know, probed and studied. Uh, depends on whether or not they can. So, um, so, so there is that. Yes, I think I think there is that uh, that irony that they don't know how much they. Um, and actually, also one of the ironic things about the story is that they use our technology to maybe stop us from right. So it's it's a story about it. It's got a lot of you know. It doesn't doesn't. Get, I don't, I'm not trying to get into some ethical thing, but it does touch upon a lot of different things that are important to me. Uh, I love technology. I also worry about what the future holds for, for it and sustainability. And I worry about, um, you know, how we are as humans that we've grown this incredible amount in terms of the amount of people that are on the planet uh, in such a short period of time. And how does that affect us? And where do we go from there? And how do we, you know, I mean, everybody's always, <laughs> I always love everybody's like, we want to have, you know, economic growth. Well, economic growth depends on a Ponzi scheme, which is that we need more people to create more stuff so that more stuff can be bought. So in essence, businesses well, I think, are. I think, I think someone's saying we want to have economic growth. I, I would think, you know, I'm, I, I'm guilty of the same thing. I would think if, if anyone says that, 90% of that means they want to do better financially. And within it's nicer right. to say instead, we want economic growth instead of I want more money and power and this, that, and the other. You know, so it's like that, a exactly. more PC way of saying it. Right. And and there's the reason why we have people who have hundreds of billion, $100 billion or $50 billion or even a billion dollars is because we have, you know, seven and a half billion people, you know, giving them a penny or two or three or five or 10 or a dollar, you know? Well, uh, here's some, here's something I want to ask you. So this is really interesting. I'm glad we're talking about this story. Um, uh, one thing came to mind as you're talking about these people that are, you know, a thousand years old, 1500 years old, I would think the hardest thing for them would be relationships because, you know, I'm, again, I'm in my forties, I'm married and all that, but, if I was single, I wouldn't date a 20-year-old. They just are like a kid to me. So if I'm 1,500 years old, how am I supposed to have a relationship with anybody, you know, unless it's one of my kind? And if I've ever had children, they're so long gone. I mean, it seems like these people would be like incredibly lonely. I don't even know if they'd want to be around after all that time because of that, you know? Yeah, and that's part of the, and that is part of the thing where, Alexander's father has, you know, you know, he talks about early on in the book that, you know, his father, used, you know, obviously around. So his father had relationships and his father's had relationships over the years. But and he says, he goes about 300 years ago, my father said, I'm done having relations, well, long term relationship with with women, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, because he just can't handle the, you know, the seeing them grow old. He can he can maybe spend 10 or 15 years with someone before even if he tells that person the truth, um, he could probably hang out for 10 or 15 years before the age difference starts to be noticed when you're older, maybe even 20 years. But 
the younger you are, the shorter the period of time that you can be in a place. Like for Alexander, he's about three years. He can be in a place. He could pretend he's 14. He could pretend he's 17, you know, or 18 or something like that. That's about the limit. So there is this idea. Now, you know, my, my conceit here is that although, you know, although they have experience and a, and a lot of experience, they still have those chemical things, especially for a teenager, that just make it, you know, their brains are not fully developed. And the, what I call FLF with my kids, uh, which is frontal lobe failure, right? Like you've made, <laughs> you've made a terrible mistake. What, you know, why? Uh, frontal lobe failure. Okay, got it. So, um, so for him, he has this, but yes, that is a major thing that, you know, the, the book opens with a quote from someone who um, starred in, was, was one of the actors in Twilight. Uh, it's a great quote. And it just says, I would not want to be immortal forever. And, yep. you know, you know, and, and that's kind of in some ways, like there's, there is this level. It's very hard for us, I think, as people who live for maybe a hundred years, if we're very, very lucky, um, to understand where you could get to that point. But I think, I think we can, like you said, I think you can extrapolate. Now, again, their minds are going to be different because this is all they know. So part of that is I've tried to extrapolate how that would be, how their ideas would be different. One, one of the things that's interesting is that the people that are very old, uh, before we kind of had science and we knew anything, they actually might have believed at one point, maybe kind of they were gods, you know, because they didn't know any better. And people believed in this crap, you know. And, well, they and, might have believed that they were going to live maybe forever. Or maybe, I don't know. I don't know what they would have lived. You're right. If someone, you know, 500 years ago lived to be 80, they would be very rare indeed. That's and right. multiple generations after them would have been dead. So they would have been in kind of that place, that same place as if you were 200 years today, 200 years old. Right. And, and, right. and now, you know, very recently, the science behind what has made these people like this has come. They know it. You know, they've, they've worked with scientists. They understand. They have their own people that have told them what this is. It's a defect in this gene in a very small sequence. And it comes from a virus that killed most of the people that, um, that got it in this small area in, you know, this, this area in Central Africa. And, you know, and they know that now. We didn't even, one of the things, and, I, and it was actually something that got cut out of the first book. And I'll probably, you know, I've released like some other stuff that's been cut. And I would probably put this together. There's this one moment where we go back to the, uh, um, to the Revolutionary War and the, the, um, the Boston Massacre. And the Boston Massacre occurred really because this kid a week earlier had been shot by a loyalist. Uh, who, you know, people were protesting outside in the street and this loyalist, kind of like what's been going on today, where there's these people with guns walking around and shooting at protesters, he shot into the crowd and basically hit this kid in the lung. And this kid is actually buried in the same grave as some of the, the people that died during the massacre. Um, oh. And he, this kid, so our Alexander is like friends with this kid because this kid's a teenager. He's about 13 or whatever. And about, that's about how old Alexander is at the time in history. And um, he talks about trying to save this kid's life. And he, he, 
he is sitting there and he's talking. He's like, he wish, like he's worried about the bleeding and the bleeding's not the problem. The problem is his lung is collapsed. And if he only knew about oxygen and could have just like breathed, like given him CPR or breathed in and, and expanded the lung, the bleeding wouldn't have been the problem. He would have saved him. But they did not know for another two years that what oxygen even was. Right. So this take, took place okay. or whatever. Right. And so it's like, that's what I love about this type of story is I get to, to tell this thing where he's talking about something where, you know, people used to talk about humors and, and all these other things that you, you know, they, they believed in that were science at the time. And it was just, they didn't know. They didn't know what oxygen, was. they didn't know what germs were, you know. Right. Okay. right? So, and, and we're going to find out something in the future that we're going to go, we were morons right now with however we believed in something. You know, it's, it's, it's hubris to think that we know what we're talking about now when history has proven pretty conclusively that at every point we've been pretty much in the dark of the truth. Well, tell me um, in your research for this book, did you like seek out any centenarians and, and interview them or, uh, you know, and then in terms of the history, how did you go so deep into the history and, you know, how did you find this stuff to write about? Well, I, I, I had, it, it all started out with the dumbest thing. I had a book that was, um, you know, it was the start of something. It was like history we get wrong, right? And it was, it's, it's, it's basic stuff and it doesn't give you everything. And it gives you some, it always gives you the same stuff, you know? Um, and, but it started me thinking about, well, what happened? And I've done some research because I was, I will just stumble across something like the thing about who had the first flight I stumbled across. I was looking for something else and I stumbled across, you know, this strange story from Bridgeport, Connecticut in, you know, 1903, this newspaper report. And then I followed it where the Wright brothers tried to basically squash information about this in order, you know, when years later, when they, when they, when the Kitty Hawk or the, what, what is it? The, not Kitty, uh, whatever the plane is called, the plane, the actual plane was in the London Museum and the Smithsonian wanted the original plane that was flown. And uh, the surviving Wright brother was like, you know what, you've been talking about all these other people, including someone who worked for the Smithsonian, who had possible uh, you know, lighter than air flight and most of it's BS. And we want you to not say ever in perpetuity that anyone had a plane, uh, you know, with lighter than air flight before our flight. Otherwise we're not going to give this plane to you and our, and we're going to have this plane and in the, and in the deed, you know, it is in perpetuity and basically the relatives of the rights could take the plane back and put up some plaque or anything that said there was any lighter than air flight before their night. Oh. And that's not the truth. And so when I found that, I was like, you know, you know, Rich, you asked like, how did this start? Well, it also started because I knew as a kid growing up living in New England, that it was bullshit about like, you know, Paul Revere's ride. And he wasn't the only guy. There were three. And oh, by the way, by the end of it, there were hundreds of people running through, um, you know, talking about. So I wanted to follow and and tell the truth about what went on and do it in a way that I could put my character in and have some humor and learn about something. And so then it becomes addictive. It becomes this thing where, by the way, 
in reviews, there are, there are about 85, 90%. Well, it's better than 90%, but the people who write reviews are always usually, as opposed to give like check marks of how many stars, um, it's about 85% are like, oh my God, I love the deep dives into history. About 15% are like, oh my God, why are we doing this other thing? They're not understanding <laughs> that the point of the story is to show uh, all of this time flow back and forth. So if you don't like history and you don't ever want to get anything, then please do not read these because you will be like, why is he going off on this tangent here? Uh, and then when you realize why it does tie together, you're going, oh, okay. But if you're not into history, you'll be like, oh. so. That's a warning. Hmm. Okay. What's um any other comments that you got from uh you know from the book that really I don't know surprised you in a good or a bad way? I, I think uh, I will tell you one of the funnier ones, and it's one of the ones that I you know I'm uh, I will I will tell you this is this is definitely a, the, one of the funniest. So there is this small group of people who are like it's very small. It's been one or two people here and there, and they just are like. This is a 1,500-year-old, and he's going out and, and hanging out with a 16-year-old girl. This is really weird. And I'm like, oh, like, okay. I'm like, his brain, he's just, he's, a, he's, a, he's actually younger than her emotionally and mentally. And, oh, if you have a problem with that, then you have a problem with every vampire movie. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, you're always like, he's not an adult male. There are no... 2,000 or 3,000 year old people hanging out with 16 year old people. And, and I just like, I'm always amazed at that, which is really funny because, and, and it's true right now, you know, our, our, we have stretched our, our adolescence out, but you know, you, you read things like Romeo and Juliet and you realize they were like 13 and he was 15 and you're just like, okay, that's, right. it's all that's about context, perfect. you know, it's context, if you, right? if you lived to an average of 30, you know, 500 years ago. <laughs> you got to yeah. get going by the time you're 14, 15, starting a family. Otherwise, not much time left. You know? That's right. Or otherwise, you're not going to be there. Yeah, yeah, it, it completely. And, um, you know, and the other thing is that the other interesting thing about this was that I got to explore that the modern family didn't really exist until 400. Like our idea of this family that in many ways, we've kind of mourned, oh, the American family or the modern family no longer, you know, people are, you know, the two parents, two kid type of thing. Um, you know, especially it, it was, you know, it was weird. It was like, first of all, uh, in agrarian societies, you just had, had a ton of kids to do work. If you were really wealthy, you hardly ever saw your kids because they went off and just learned and you were just like, oh, okay, I'll see you in a couple of years. Um, it didn't exist. And and so for our, for this character, you know, even though he was only six, seven, eight hundred years old, you know, where he looked like he was eight or nine, um, because they ate slow back, um, because of science. Um, anyway, so, um, he was doing things that we would never let an eight-year-old do today. We might have let an eight or a nine-year-old do 50 or a hundred years ago, you know, where they would work a farm and do something and, you know, go out on their own and leave and walk into town and get milk or give the milk or sell the milk. You know, we would never let any, I mean, people get arrested these days for doing that. You know? I remember in my own life, I, my, my dad worked in New York city and when I was 11, I would go and, you know, get a cab, go to the train, go into the city, walk 10 blocks to go see him yep. and then go home late at night. And then no problem. No, I was 11. Now I, I have kids myself and I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> I, I, I could never let them do that. But times change, you know? 
They do. And uh, they do. And, and I think, you know, um, yeah, I, I mean, we just have more information a lot of times. And, you know, I, I just, I just don't, I think that whatever happens now gets amplified. You know, when something bad happens to a person, it is amplified. Where a hundred years ago, we might not hear what happened three towns over. And um, we just didn't know about this stuff. And so. How, how long have you seen it takes for something that's considered uh, forever to be locked in? Like you said, the, the nuclear family is about 400 years old. You know, how long do you think it takes for some new way of doing things to become the standard where people feel like it's always been this way and that's how it should be? I think it depends. You know, I think it really depends on the thing. And I think there are, you know, um, I, I believe this is true about evolution. I believe there are, you know, we've always looked at evolution. We always think about evolution as this smooth transition going forward as, you know, we, we have, we started out as, a, you know, amoebas and we eventually, you know, somehow crawled onto the land and now we're somehow us. And it was all a pretty smooth transition. But, but data has shown that there are incredible jumps and spikes in evolution for environmental reasons or whatever, where something happens in a very small amount of time, very, very small in comparison to the epoch of the world and even small you know, within hundreds of years of something we would think is a, a small amount of time. And I think the perfect example of this is something you said earlier, which is the iPhone, the smartphone, right? I mean, yep. 2007, I did not have a smart, I did not have an iPhone. I'm a big Apple person. I've been since 1986, I've had an Apple something, right? A Macintosh or this or whatever. And, you know, I didn't buy the first one. I bought the second version. And so 2008. So I, I was like, this is it's a piece of crap right now. I know it's going to be great, but it's just not ready. So most people kind of 2008, 2009, when the app store and everything, that's when everything exploded. So it's only been 11 years and it has changed everything. It has changed how we do everything. And um, so I think it, to answer your question, things like uh, family and to, to lock in, I think it takes an innovation or a historical event or a cataclysmic moment, we might be in one again, that might change who we are with uh, the current pandemic. Um, and then it takes it, then we adapt very quickly to a problem or an opportunity. And then that lasts for a while. And then something else will happen in the future. So the truth is that we might think like we get into this mode where we're like, oh, we're locked into this family mode of what we do because our lives are only 100 years. So if something's 400 years old, it's been our entire life. My kids, for their, ever since they were seven or eight, there's been smartphones. So their cognitive growth period, they've always had these things. So for them, that's normal. For you and me, it's like it's relatively new, but it changed us. For people who are 90, they're like, how do I, you know, use the microphone, you know, and, you know, they're still trying to figure that stuff out. So I think it depends, but I also think it tells us that what we think now, just like that thing about how science, I feel like the future is going to reveal us to be ignorant, you know? Yeah, I'm sure it will. I mean, with, with the phone example, it's funny, like in my own family, my dad got his first smartphone when he was like 55. I got mine when I was like 25, you know, cell phone. And then my kids were like, were born with phones, you know, in their hand. Right. So <laughs> it's, it hasn't been long and it's been a big, quick transition. 
Rich, have you ever done this? I have done this. I have literally done this. I've seen actually little kids do this, but I actually did it myself where I have been, well, I have picked up a magazine. I've picked up a, a Time magazine that I've gotten or a, or a, Vo, or a you know, a, not a Vogue, um, a Vanity Fair. And I've been reading Vanity Fair and I will see a word and I will put my finger on it because I want to get the definition of the goddamn word. And it's a piece of paper. And I've just literally gone, oh, I literally tried to pretend it was a tablet. What, (laughs) you know, I I was like, it it was mind boggling. Like I went, okay, all right. I've been rewired. I've seen little kids, you know, touch TVs or like little kids I see, they think everything is a touch screen when it's not, you know, but I haven't seen like, (laughs) <laughs> I haven't done what you've done, but you know, no, I did no that. Problem. Yeah. I, I heard a, it was like a, it was a meme I saw somewhere after I did that. It was, uh, you know, to a kid, a magazine is a broken iPad, right? Mm, yeah. You, you know, they're trying, they're trying to get the thing. They're trying to swipe it. It's just. Well, in Star Trek, I don't know which one it was. <clears throat> it was with the old crew and they came to, you know, quote unquote, modern times. I remember Mr. Scott saying computer, computer, and it couldn't talk to him. And they just right. thought like the technology we had was garbage because they were used to talking to it. You know? <laughs> They're like, and, and, right. And he, he actually did the thing with his, with his, with his knuckles. He kind of cracked his knuckles. Cause he's like, all right, fine. I have to do the other interface, the, mm-hmm. the keyboard yeah. interface. Haven't done this in a while. Yeah. Uh, so, so I have a question for you. Uh, I have sure. a question. For, so you really to talk about, you know, like all of these interesting things, what is your overarching, like how, what, why did you bring all of us together? Like all of these different things? Well, I love to learn. I love to ask questions. You know, everyone I know always says, geez, you ask a lot of questions. So, <laughs> and I'm auditory. So I, I, I noticed, um, you know, I, again, I just ask a lot of questions. So I've noticed uh, if I want to learn about a particular field, I go and I interview people in that field. And now I have like some general numbers in my head. Like when I interview the first 10 people in any given field, I'm finding my way. When I get up to 30, I've got a decent command of it. When I get <laughs> right. up to 100, in some fields, I've gotten up to 100 or more. Like Then I feel like I can see the whole landscape of that interest, industry and where the players are and what they're doing and, and things like that. So that's, that's one thing I love doing. Another thing, too, is if, if there's anything that you or anyone or me is really interested in, what's better than to talk to all kinds of experts working on that thing and see how each of them do it. It just gives a lot more richness to that topic. Like, you know, let's say you're interested in archery. I mean, imagine going to study with all the top people in the world that do archery and see how they all do it. Like it would just make it so much richer to you. You'd love it. So those are just some of the the things I've gotten. And I just, I enjoy doing it. That's why. And I want to, I want, I want other people too to obviously benefit from it. So it's, you know, that's why. Well, it's great because I, you know, I came through, uh, even like reaching out to you, I've ca- I came through listening to different parts of like some, you know, were like sci-fi authors, some were crypto and some were medical and, and different things and, and science based. And, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting to put this stuff together. One of the things that I talk about with people, you know, I can, I can sit in a room and I can go into almost any room and you can throw me in the deep end of the pool and I'm going to be able to tread water talking to anybody, like whoever they are, um, because I've because I've done so much research in my life over different things. I'm going to know something about that subject that that person is talking. Now, it's you know, it's 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 topsoil. 
right? It's just the topsoil. They know all the way down to the bedrock. But, you know, but I can get into the conversation because I have a little bit of knowledge. And then it is fascinating to then hear the rest of it, you know, um, right. be, because, because people will think if you have this vast little thin layer of knowledge that you're well-informed, well, you may be moderately, you may, you may know a lot about a little, but nowadays it takes so much to be an expert. You know, one of the things I find interesting is that we don't have Einstein's anymore. You know, we just don't because, you know, we can't that because one person can't put together something so impressive you know, because we have so much more knowledge, it, it, you know, there are geniuses, but they're, they're pods. One of the things that, you know, people talk about is, you know, the old, the myth, uh, the, the Joseph Campbell myth of the hero, you know, even in this story here, the story starts out as a traditional hero myth with a hero. And as we move through the book, it becomes more of what I think we are today, which is collective here. You even look at the, the, you know, the Marvel comic, uh, you know, cinematic universe, it started out with Iron Man and then it grew and become, becomes this thing because one person can't do it. And in some ways that's the other lesson about, about this story is that a person, even these 4,000 year olds who are great and can be, you know, they can be defeated or at least battled, not by a singular new upstart, but we must all come. Yeah. Well, very good, Edward. We got to wrap because it's top of the hour. But what I want uh, for listeners, tell them the various books you have, where they can get them, and you know, a quick taste of what's coming soon. Let's recap that so they can find out more about you because you're an interesting character, you know, for being four thousand years old yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, you can go to edwardsavio.com um, or you know, follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Edward Savio. I'm a little more active on Twitter. Um, and, but, uh, if you go to battleforforever.com, battleforforever.com, and you can get a free taste of, it's a novella called Bloodborne, which, uh, doesn't matter whether you come in before or after the Battle for Forever books, which is Alexander X, Ancient Among Us at the moment. Um, you'll get an idea. It's told from a different person's point of view, one of my favorite. Um, and it gives you an idea of what, the, the world is and also what is to come if you have read the books uh you, you know you can read them on amazon or any place you get books but um you know if you're if you are audible <laughs> is amazing because especially for adults um we don't always have the time to sit down and do something we we sometimes will read quote quote uh, while we're doing other things. And uh, the great, amazing Will Wheaton, um, we got him to do this and it was a, a major coup. And, uh, you know, as a writer, it's always, a, it's always cool to see and hear something that someone takes your words and they're doing them legitimately word for word, but they still make them, they take them to the next. So mm. that's where I would go check that stuff out. And um you know, there's also my mainstream fiction, which is Idiots in the Machine, which is fun. And I've got uh, the absolutely not safe for work Velvet Sledgehammer coming out next year, which none of my readers under 18 should read at all. Um, but uh, it's just about it. It's about coming of May, age for, you know, uh, people trying to figure out 
whether it's right time to have kids and uh okay. but funny and all well, very good well, edward it's been a great call and, and thank you for coming rich thanks for having me and thanks for doing this stuff because uh it's interesting and uh you know it, it provides a service to people right on if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.